0: listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye
2: 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We were broadcasting live from ADNEC for Abu Dhabi International Food Exhibition. We were meeting Chef Dima Sharif. She was explaining her passion for Arabian cuisine and why she's bringing together some people to take it to the next level in the future. Plus, what are some of the big misconceptions about food from this part of the world? We were also learning about coffee, not just just how to make a perfect cup but how to make it look absolutely beautiful latte art and picky eaters is there one in your household a parenting coach joined us live on the line to answer my questions and yours Over the course of the afternoon here um, at the ADIFA, we are talking to chefs, we're meeting the producers. We're going to be talking a lot of coffee today. I'm so delighted now to be joined by Chef Dima Sharif. She is a Dubai-based chef, cookbook author, and she's a co-organizer for the World Gourmet Show. This is the second time it's taken place in Abu Dhabi, and the first time here at Adnec, and it's all about Arabic cuisine. They are bringing together chefs from all over the world for the Arab Cuisine Forum to gather, identify challenges, and develop that cuisine. Dima, this is something you're obviously incredibly passionate about. It's lovely to have you with us. How are you?
3: So nice to be on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And yes, so passionate about this. I
2: want to explore this fully, but I'd love to start with you. Where did you grow up, Dima?
3: So I grew up in Jordan. Um, originally Palestinian, grew up in Jordan and then um, after graduating from university lived in Bahrain for six years, and then after that, I've been in the UAE since 2005. Wow! So a lot of influences there. Who was cooking when you were growing up, and, and what was on the table? My mom, definitely. Um, we we are very traditional when it comes to that. My mom always cooked, and my mom is a very good cook. You're so but lucky. But I'm also lucky because both grandmothers, both sides, were the known, you know, best cooks in the family. You know, every. <gasps> You were destined then to
2: work in food. Did I'm telling you. Did you know
3: how lucky you were growing up? I didn't. Also, because my family, uh, we owned farms, and so produce, mm. food, freshness, discussions about food in general were part of my growing up without me knowing any of any um, of the importance of the information that I was that receiving. That must have had
2: such an impact on your understanding of flavours, of seasonality, freshness.
3: Is that something you've only kind of come to realise in your adult life? I come to realise it really when I left home. Mm-hmm. Because that's when I started, you know, you enjoy the, um, the eating out for a while, especially when you first leave home, but then you you maybe you feel homesick and you want that food. But then that's when you realize the difference between the food you grew up eating and the commercial food out Mm -hmm, there. And you start analyzing, like, what's special about this? But you see, that's what influenced all my decisions when it came to actually becoming a member of this industry.
2: I want you to make us hungry. What were some of the dishes that uh, your mum and your and your grandmothers were, were feeding you as a child?
3: So, I'm sure you know it now that you live in the Middle East, the stuffed um, grape leaves. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, we have a version that's warm. It's not the appetizer version and that's a Palestinian specialty. That to me, there's nothing in the world that comes close to how tasty, homely warm and and you know, there's a lot of love that goes into it because it's laborious. Mm-hmm. So you really have to love someone to cook that for them. I
2: think that is the missing ingredient a lot of the time when we g- do go out to eat. And don't get me wrong, I love eating in restaurants. I love the social side. I love the people watching. Um, I love you know, eating something I'd never be able to cook at home. But I'm so looking forward to going back to the UK at Christmas because it's going to be around the table right. and with my family who I haven't seen in a long time. And we often forget you know, we hear a lot from fitness trainers. You know, food is fuel. Yes. But food is community and celebration and communication and memories. My goodness. Right. You know, just everything you're talking about there. Um. So tell us then a little bit about your decision to to go into the industry and become a chef. What was that process like?
3: Actually, I never planned it. I kind of stumbled into the whole um, world of culinary. Actually, when it first started, it started off because I really wanted to eat the food I was accustomed to eating growing up. And even if I went to the restaurants uh, that cooked the same food, it still didn't taste the same. Mm-hmm. And in my attempt to beat my homesickness, I would call my mom and tell her, how do you do that and how do you do this? And then I realized, especially in the beginnings, she'd tell me, listening to the instructions, it sounded very easy. Oh yeah, 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 I know how to do this one. But then only two minutes later, what? Then. And then it occurred to me like how complex, how much care goes into food prep. Mm -hmm. Then there was another part which is basically my stubborn self because I am one of those people who when, I cannot just let things go. So for example. Talk with the bone, got to conquer the recipe, got to get to the crux of it. And there were times when it works perfectly and times when it flops massively. And I was like, why, what happened? And this, I think, is where the industry started for me, because mm-hmm. when I would asked my mom as a home cook, she didn't have answers to all the questions. And so here I was thinking, no, we can't not have answers. We have to know what worked and what didn't. And but then that is where it's interesting because I was never professionally trained. Mm-hmm. So I had to go through the process of understanding and actually figuring out and reading and researching, which made me go so much in depth with food and much. Much
2: much more than someone would get in a classroom or a a college or a kitchen. Joined now by chef and author Dima Sharif, she is a co-organizer for the World Gourmet Show right here at Atif and she's also uh, behind the Arab Cuisine Forum. This is all about Arabic cuisine, something you're you're so passionate about, Dima. And I wanted to ask you, firstly, what are some of the big myths and misconceptions you think about the food, either within the region or outside of it, globally as well?
3: People think that um, when you say Arab cuisine, it's the grills and the meze, and that's Mm. it. It stops there. Or maybe the shawarma. But, you know, the cuisine is rich, it's rich, it's historic and it's perfect because it's had so long to be perfected and it's just full and and lush. So you have the Arab region, you're talking about from the Gulf to Morocco and everything in between and every country. Um, in this region has its own culture, its own cuisine, its own um, additions. So really to say that it's only grills and meze um, is not doing it justice and that's why we're having this forum. So, as you say, completely reductive. So tell us a little bit about the chefs that you've brought together, why they were
2: chosen and ultimately what they're going to be, uh, the role they're playing as part of this forum.
3: Right, and look, this is the first ever forum for Arab cuisine ever. So the come together of chefs from all around the Arab um, countries to come and represent Arab cuisine together. It's not a competition. It's, there <laughs> are competitions, but oh. the competitions are to decide like who in Abu Dhabi is making the best hummus, for example, the best each It's just to encourage the restaurants to take um, the classics a step further and, and to perfect that. But then um, the guest chefs. I'm. Um, we brought chefs who are loved who have a lot of following, the reason being because this forum is all about, it's it's a cuisine development project and this is really serious, we are taking it very seriously, we want to develop Arab cuisine and create a modern section to Arab cuisine and so we want people who have their own followers, enthusiasts about food because You know, to develop a cuisine it's not just the chefs, it's the whole industry, Mm -hmm. it's the makers, it's the producers, it's the farmers, it's also the home cooks, it's the cooks, the bloggers, it's the writers, you know, because there has to be raising awareness as to where this is going Mm -hmm. and... The project is massive, and so the chefs coming, we have from Jordan, Chef Mohamed Atiyah, he's embassy top chef. We have Chef Osama Gassab, also embassy top chef, and Tarek Taha from Palestine, uh, embassy top chef. Then we have Karim Haidar coming all the way from Paris, originally Lebanese. Right. We have um, Suzanne Husseini, she's coming all the way from Canada, she's Palestinian originally. And then we have Chef Khaloud from the UAE, she is known of course, Khaloud Atiq is uh, one of the best chefs out there, and the most well-known there's going to be some amazing conversations right right. i'm I'm
2: curious whether we're going to be going for dinner as well i'm sure there's been going to be some good meals going
3: on too i mean there's you have to come (laughs) down i can't tell you enough because they're cooking live with passion and they're explaining to everybody like the foods well can people come and experience what they're going to be talking about and cooking as well Dima? look you have two days you have to, The rest of today, you have tomorrow and after tomorrow, come, don't miss this. Really don't miss this. Be part of this. It's a rebirth for Arab cuisine, and you'll see these chefs and connect with them. You'll hear um, everything they have to say. They're sharing a lot of techniques because we're, we want, like I said, everybody to be a part of this. Um, we've got a
2: couple of messages for you. Uh, Rowan. saying, you were talking earlier about, about the stuffed vine leaves. Also, food stuffed cabbage leaves oh are my Rowan's gosh. favourite. And a controversial one. This is from Carlos saying, but where is hummus really from? I okay. don't know how tongue-in-cheek this is, Carlos, but I'm intrigued to
3: get Dima's answer. I have tackled this perfectly in my book, Plated Heirlooms, and I would tell you how I tackled it. Who comes first, oh. the chicken or the egg? <laughs> So you're you're being very non-committal this afternoon. It's not non-committal, it's just the fact which we are discussing that Arab cuisine really shares a lot of its ingredients, a lot of its dishes. You'll find in the Middle East that some dishes have different namings but they're the same or they have same names but they're different. Um, Hummus, to cut the long story short and the definitive answer, it came from Iraq that's where it started Mesopotamia that's where it first started the mixing of hummus with tahini making the hummus we know today mm-hmm. that happened in jerusalem and that happened well 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 back in history
2: and who knows where it's going to go in the future with these brilliant minds coming together and right. a real focus on the future. Thank you so much, Dima. If anyone wants to find your book and, of course, you have your website uh, the as well, what's the best way of, of tracking you down and learning more about that great hummus debate in more detail?
3: Instagram is the easiest because you get all my
2: other contacts through Instagram. Recipes, beautiful imagery and some fantastic storytelling as well. Chef Dima, thank you so much. Get back to your uh, your merry you. band of chefs. It's going to be a fantastic couple of days. Speaking of being in good, strong voice, we're joined now by Shelley Frost. She's the founder of The Fridge and the woman behind bringing Fest, the children and teens here in the UAE. This is a competition across all seven Emirates, bringing the joy of singing to thousands of students across the country. Shelley, it's so lovely to have you with us. How are you?
1: I'm really good. I feel, um, <laughs> if music be the food of love, sing on, <laughs> it seems to be. <laughs>
2: absolutely the right now from I recently from after I'll take it I will take it I um I searched for a long time to find a choir and I am so grateful that our school started a parent and uh and basically and parent and teacher choir so on Tuesday mornings at seven o'clock we meet before school and have a good old sing song so we're practicing a couple of things for the Christmas party and I think I'd forgotten just how much I love singing and I'm not very good at it what do you think the power of voices coming together is and and, and why it can be so meaningful and so good for our mental health as well Shelley
1: yeah absolutely it's so interesting that you have a personal experience of that singing is something that we can all do Um, you don't have to be particularly good at it to get the benefits if you to put it that way There's an incredible sense of unity when you raise your voice and you raise your voice in a group, something happens. And that analogy of being in harmony and singing in harmony uh, is is really manifest somehow in real life. The raising your voice for for good also. um, Choir Fest has become a a real oasis within the Middle East communities, reflecting the, the warmth and generous values of tolerance that really define the UAE. And I think in your everyday life, I've come across choirs that we honor where the stories are unbelievable from, as you say, your dedication getting up and rehearsing at 7am early in the morning to really phenomenal examples like the uh, Syrian choir called the Gardenian choir. Uh, And they got together during the unrest in Syria and really impacted the lives of people where they chose repertoire from cartoons from the 80s reminding people of when they had happier times and they did the most wonderful arrangements and really planned concerts around boosting morale so singing is an incredible thing Um,
2: it really really is and I think for children as well and I say this as with two children who I would say one has got very good pitch, one we're working on it, <laughs> but coming together with you know with children of, of different ages, different backgrounds, and being united in song is so, so powerful and Choir Fest Middle East is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening for a very special anniversary.
1: Yeah, it really returns in 2023 as its biggest and best edition in its event, uh, in, in its decade-long history. And what is different this time is that children from across the entire Emirates will have competitions in each of their Emirates with a final uh, across the in each of the Emirates across the country. The There is a chance also to win a prize, to go to the... Uh, world choir games which are hosted in south korea at the beginning of june next year so the winners will be jetting off to take part (laughs) in that extraordinary event and also for the adults. yeah the adults also have a, a an amazing time where the the gala concert is hosted in the spectacular dubai opera and this for this next year, we're throwing Choirfest open for the first time to international choirs to take part. And this is a really key part of supporting one of our core aims, which is also to celebrate Arabic choral music. And there are many choirs internationally that are fascinated with uh, Arabic singing and the st- very different style that that represents. And we feel that this is an even greater platform for exchange and deep cultural um, experience. So
2: so who's eligible? I'm just anticipating messages coming in the text line, Shelley. Who's eligible to join and participate and have a chance of, as you say, going to to South Korea for what sounds like an incredible pitch-perfect event?
1: Um, In terms of children's choirs, absolutely anybody is eligible. There are junior, middle and senior school categories there's this choice of songs is completely free, so there you to each choir chooses the songs that they want to sing. There's nothing that is prescribed. So you really have free reign to choose something that you're passionate about and enjoy singing. And uh, for the adults, really, if you are anywhere between the age of six to ninety, you can take part. And it doesn't matter what language you sing in, it doesn't matter whether you have, a uh, musical formation in your background or not uh, that's the beauty of singing that we all really meet on a unified platform
2: well said indeed and as you say on the website after two silent years because of covid choir fest is back, February 2023, 10th anniversary. The website, I've had a couple of matches, is choirfestemmy.com. Shelley Frost, I know you're working incredibly hard behind the scenes, and thank you for sharing your enthusiasm. Um, I think it's really, really wonderful to think of people coming together in song, and as you say, sometimes for good causes and for cultural moments, and sometimes just for the sheer joy of singing. In my case, a little bit of wonky shaking Stevens on a Tuesday morning. Thank you so, so much. and um, wishing you all the very best. Keep us informed. We'd love to catch up nearer the time and perhaps speak to a few of the choirs, maybe have a little sing song on the radio. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, that website again is ChoirfestME.com. Um, if you want that, by all means drop a little line on 4001. As Shelley says, from ages 6 to 99, um, you could be performing um, at Dubai Opera um, with quires from all over the world and maybe even going international there are two types of coffee people those who love coffee and those who are absolutely obsessed with it so much now it's been it's a competitive beverage joining us now is Khaled al he is the national coordinator at the special coffee association and one of the organizers at the Brewers Cup competition we are going to be talking latte art in just a few minutes as well Khaled I want to know how many cups of coffee do you think you drink a day?
4: Well, I'm average person. I'm a tea drinker and coffee as well. So, so all the caffeine? So, uh, say three cups a day. That's very one restrained. One one afternoon, one evening. So.
2: And when did you start? Because this is something I find really confusing as a parent. When do I start giving my children tea and coffee?
4: <laughs> How old were you when you had your first cup? You can say maybe college time or uh, even high school. I mean, I see, you see a lot of kids uh, doing uh, their uh, project in uh, speciality cafes, which yeah. is booming now worldwide as well. Yeah. I want
2: to know more about this competition. You are bringing together some of the best brewers in the world and trying to get the perfect cup. Tell us a little bit about who's here at Abu Dhabi to, to try and stake Absolutely. their claim on the trophy.
4: Yeah, and of course. Uh, it's a career path for the competitor because uh, whoever wins uh, Basically, uh, he will represent UAE in a world level. So Wow,
2: so you're looking for someone to represent the UAE and they're going to be going to yeah. an international competition.
4: Absolutely. We have six uh, national championships, even more. So we have Barista, Latte Art, Bruce Cup, Cup Tasters, Ibrick and Roasting. And, uh, so what
3: so
2: are the judges looking for?
4: Uh, come again. What,
2: what are the judges looking for? Yeah,
4: it's uh, duration and the cup, there is compulsory round for a brews cup and there is an open service, basically they bring their own coffee and they have 15 minutes to prepare, so it goes by hygiene by time and by quality and information knowledge as well.
2: Now I don't want to annoy anyone listening today Khadj, but where do you think the best coffee beans come from? Which country oh, do it really We get these well? questions
4: all the time. Because we want to spend okay. our hard-earned dirhams very well. No, it's it's the same when you ask him what's the Best, best car in the world so we have a high range of uh, highly graded coffee and uh, plus we have the commercial grade obviously which we call it a specialty coffee and so on yeah if this is so, you not, not giving so, me an answer uh, <laughs> if you ask me as a person preference i go with the ethiopian coffee or even png Papua New Guinea or costa rica coffee or uh, even ending in Balabar one of their best coffees as well. Do you ever
2: stop working when you're going out to meet people to have a you know a coffee after dinner? Are you always thinking, always tasting, always
4: judging, and even when you're not supposed to be? Well, I know that I sleep less, so five <laughs> hours. <laughs> so. so yes, <laughs> so it keeps me awake. Yeah. So
2: tell us then about creating coffee at home. If you're having your morning coffee. Tell us about, about brewing that, in a way that people listening today can, can oh, really pick up some tips Oh, you should see my on.
4: coffee counter at God. my home. Paint as a picture. Be, you will be surprised what I have over there. Come on. Seriously, I have like piece of uh, many gadgets. It's like a lap, coffee lap. So,
2: yeah, it's in espresso kitchen with
4: different brewing methods, with siphon, with uh, V60. I have to show it to you. It sounds, but yeah. coffee,
2: I feel like coffee is having a real moment. We're going to talk about perhaps the power of Instagram when we're talking latte yeah. art in just a few minutes. But why do you think it is growing and growing in terms of people caring more where their coffee is from rather than just wanting a blast mm-hmm. and that kind of caffeine? question.
4: Basically, our industry strongly relies on what an education. So mm-hmm. we teach you to differentiate between specialty coffee and commercial grade. The moment you shift it, to a specialty, there is no going back because everyone wants to drink something quality. So what's the key? We have to educate the masses, which we have uh, all kinds of programs and uh, s- courses. We call it the SEA Education Models and we t- uh, teach you and you get international recognized certificates as well. So anyone so who, who
2: wants to develop their palette, develop their knowledge can do a course with absolutely. you? Absolutely.
4: Yeah, we do, we do that, and uh, eventually, what happened? Coffee giant changed their market strategy, like the Nestle bought Blue Bottle, and then Starbucks started the Reserve roastery. Mm-hmm. Costa invested in the specialty division, even Lavazza as well. You know, these are the say more commercial or commodity coffee that they're elevating it as well so uh, there's uh, demographic changing in the whole world about the specialty coffee i
2: feel like i need to confess to you that i don't drink coffee and i'm wondering if perhaps you're the man to change my mind what would you recommend (laughs) i've I've maybe had one latte in my life and a couple of espressos when I was in desperate need. But what would you recommend for someone that perhaps wants to dip their toe into the world of coffee? What, where would be a I'm good place gonna to recommend. start?
4: I'm not going to recommend I'm going to get my uh, prepared coffee over there and come back to you and just tast it. We, <laughs> to will, do try a,
2: my we will do a live tasting. <laughs> Khalid is Thank here you. at ADNEC this afternoon as part of this fantastic competition. They are looking for someone to represent the UAE and heading to Athens next June for an international competition. We are keeping you caffeinated all through this afternoon. We've just been talking about brewing the perfect cup, but what about getting stylish with your cup of coffee? Arty lattes. We've got Mishari Alakutu here joining us from the latte art grading system. This is a whole world I was completely unaware of, Mishari. You're joining us from Kuwait today, but you have got competitors joining us from all over the world, all seeking to be the world champion of latte art. Is that right?
0: Hi, Uh, Helen. So, yes, absolutely, yes. We have 11 countries competing on this competition. 28 uh, competitors from all over the world, from uh, Latin America to Asia. This is the first time
2: it's happened outside of Italy, is that right? Absolutely.
0: It's the first time since 2016 it's happened out of Italy. And we have the world level today in GCC, in Abu Dhabi.
2: So the world champion in latte art is somewhere amongst us, somewhere at ADNEC. They must have been practicing like absolute crazy we're going to talk about some techniques and trends soon but I'm curious where did latte art first start what's the origin
0: Okay, there is a plenty of stories, especially started in uh, or, or it's, uh, it's it's in '82, '83, and '80s. At the end, a lot of people they create a patterns, a certain patterns in this period. Mm. Then the people start to understand that they can pour the coffee, the the, the the milk, or they product it in a certain way that they can ha- have it on the top
2: of the cup itself. I mean, it's a, it's a way of being creative, but also it's a pretty pretty uh, natty marketing tool as well especially when we think about the role of Instagram you know having having a cup of coffee that you take a, you know take a picture of it's a it's a very good way of you know spreading spreading the love for your cafe and um, where where have you seen the most unusual latte art okay um, mostly you'll
0: find in the in the in the championships and the competitions that everyone try his best to create a new patterns or an unusual pattern just to impress the judges to win the the competition. So last time I saw an amazing pattern was in uh, in Milan with the uh, Manuel Finsore, uh, which is the previous World Latte Art champion, and really like the pattern was something unbelievable. What was so the the I mean, just imagine any kind of animals, any kind of uh, uh, unusual like, like unicorn, whatever you, you imagine, led to the Latte Art. You can not really let your eye just enjoy the drink. Plus, I mean, you enjoy the pleasant of the taste.
2: So we're talking about obviously design you know, yes. that artistic style. But there's also technique in terms of creating these lattes to be almost 3D as well. What are some of the techniques used in terms of really building out, And it's
0: engineering really. Yes, yes, absolutely. So it's related to the kind of pitcher that you use, the level of, uh, of, of heat or the temperature of, of the frothing that you, 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 you follow and a certain technique on, on hand, like the angle, how you pour, pour the, the milk and the pitcher. So it's a, there's a lot of secrets on behind, you know.
2: I want to know, lastly, how do you grade it when you're looking at judging and finding that world champion? What are you looking for?
0: Great and amazing, uh, like, question. There is, it's, 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 it's exactly like this, the martial arts. So there's a the colors, starting from white and then by gold. So it go all out, all the way, white, orange, green, red, black, and gold. So each level, they, they have a certain kind of patterns. It's like you are in an art class. After you just uh, like you, 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 you prefer. Uh, you, you so,
2: you need to achieve before you move up to the next level? Absolutely, yes. Oh my goodness. Do we have any gold competitors in the building now?
0: Uh, in this competition, we have only three levels uh, green, and red, and black, and the people can compete. It's only from green till gold, so. Mishai, go
2: and take some pictures of some of this latte art. Come back to us. I'm desperate to see this. We'll share it on our social media as well. And I want to know from you, have you seen any great latte art here in the UAE? Give your favorite cafe a bit of a shout out. Um, If anyone does want to find out more, we are going to be broadcasting live from Atnak this afternoon. It is the Abu Dhabi International Food Exhibition. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. Don't drink too much coffee. (laughs) And if you do, come back for a chat. We are talking food this afternoon and what better place to do it than ADNEC for the Abu Dhabi International Food Exhibition. Joining me now from Lulu Hypermarkets Retail is the private labelling director, Shamim Abdeen, has been with the company and the country for 25 years. So who better to find out a bit what's what been happening behind the scenes, not just over the course of the event, but the last few years as well. Um, can I ask you, Shamim, this is the first event of its kind um, here at ADNEC, and I'm wondering how important are events such as this for you to be meeting partners, potential? Partners. What's been so lovely for me is seeing some really
5: small local producers meeting the likes of you. How, how is it going so far? Hi, Ellen. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about this show. And, you know, we are a Abu Dhabi based company and we are one of the leading uh, retailer in the region and all. And uh, we are very closely associated with uh, Abu Dhabi agriculture and. Uh, Food Safety Authority Mm -hmm. and uh, they are coming up with uh, an event uh, of this kind and uh, we have the responsibility to be a part of this show. So that's how uh, we are partnered with them as the retail sponsor of the event. And we see that this show uh, is giving us a platform to exhibit our Producers and all. So we are into retail. At the same time, now we have both distribution uh, company. We are one of the leading distributor. Also, we have Alteb Distribution, mm-hmm. Alteb Meat uh, Establishment. So these two companies, mainly indulge in distributing the products like uh, many branded products to this uh, GCC region and all and at the same time now we have many private label products now we import from different parts of the world so we see that you know this particular even give us an opportunity to showcase our products and uh, we can uh, you know and, ex- and,
2: and meet some new people as well yeah we, there's country pavilions from all over the world i've heard good things about the turkish snacks um, obviously lots of coffee chat going on um, but i wondered in, in terms of trends and buying patterns that you've noticed through COVID, post COVID, looking into 2023, right? What are consumers looking for right now, Shreem? You know, what
5: I can see is that you know, now after COVID, after COVID, you know, um, customers are moving towards more healthy, natural, uh, free frame products, and uh, there are many more products uh, producers you know, who are indulging, uh, you know, giving more uh, you know varieties in mm-hmm. this regard and all. So we see that now here in uh, this exhibition. There are many manufacturers who are producing these kind of products, and and we are utilizing this uh, opportunity to meet those. Uh, producers
2: you must have seen an explosion of this in store as well because i remember you know five years ago there might be one vegan cheese in the chiller counter and now it's a case of you know meat alternatives all sorts of different plant-based milks and cheeses right and i think it's past a trend now it's just part of a way of life and it's kind of interesting to try and separate where does that demand come from is it the consumer Asking that of the retailer, or is it the retailer presenting these options to the consumer, and, and they're, they're kind of then responding?
5: What do you think? What I can say is that it's both way. Like the you know, customers, you know uh, we are, you know, recording the feedbacks of the customers, you no, know, mm-hmm. on a daily basis. You no, know, we are interacting with more than one million customers in the GCC. Wow, that I can say. So uh, we are getting more uh, feedbacks from the customers, Some and good data. Uh, we, we are just take, uh, taking note of their requirements. At the same time, you now we are doing research to find out what are all the new Trends in the market and also so based on this, so we arrived at uh, uh, a decision to, Able to bring respond. out new products and also.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit about local because we've got some fantastic. I mean, Abu Dhabi our cultural and food safety authorities just is just there. We've got some beautiful fresh produce in front of us. What about the importance of growing local, shopping local, and having things from right here in the UAE? Is that a priority for you as well at Lulu? Uh,
5: first of all, the thing is that uh, getting the produce produced locally uh, to a customer. Uh, You know, means it's fresh, and uh, we wanted to give freshly produced products to our customers secondly it's our responsibility to support the local Absolutely. companies yeah, yeah. so we try to associate with those companies who are producing fruits vegetables and other uh, uh, you know manufactured products regionally so and can
2: i ask this, I mean what did you learn from covid about the importance of sourcing and the importance i guess of food security as well what what were some of the big lessons yeah. that we we as consumers we were, you know we, we yeah. saw awful awful stories and pictures from around the world about empty shelves and stockpiling and people just not knowing what was going to be in their supermarkets and here in dubai you know we were very very blessed that wasn't the case for us and no. it
5: was people like you
2: who were responsible for that
5: yeah so uh first of all i would thank to the government over here and also they foresee the the problems problems associated with this COVID that could happen and in moved this region. fast
0: as well yeah, yeah. so
5: they approached all the retailers and uh, they have given confidence to bring uh, many products from different parts of the world. As mm-hmm. Lulu, we have we are having many sourcing offices all across the world. We were able to mobilize the products as fast as possible to this region. And uh, we associated with the food security program of the government and, uh, and it worked well. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Lulu, I think that now everybody who are in this region uh, would remember that Lulu provided all sort of products uh, without uh, any uh, out-of-stock situation to the region.
2: Well, I know you've got an awful lot of meetings this afternoon, an awful lot of people who would love to see themselves on the shelves of Lulu Hypermarkets. So, thank you so much for your time, Shame really do appreciate it. It's going to be a busy couple of days, yeah. so I'm, glad, I'm sure you were grateful to have a little sit-down. Thank <laughs> you, Helen. Take care of yourself. Speaking yeah. to us there, the Private Labelling Director of Lulu Hypermarkets, the retail partner for the show, Shamim Abdeen. We are here talking food this afternoon, which can be a joyful, celebratory thing, but it also can be a huge source of stress when you have a child who's a picky eater. And I say this with very much first hand experience. We're bringing the experts today, Mesa Fahua, conscious parenting coach, to take my questions and yours on dealing with fussy eating. When is it problematic? When do you need to go to the doctor? And how can we as parents manage our own emotions and expectations around something that? it can be incredibly upsetting. Mesa, thank you so much for being with us, how are you?
6: Hi Helen, I'm well, how are you?
2: I'm really well, thank you. As as I said earlier, I have an eight year old, almost eight year old, who is a great eater, You know, very willing to try new things. Mm -hmm. And I think, in honesty, I think she does it to please us because she knows that we're like, oh, fantastic, she's trying X, Y, Z. And I've got Mm -hmm. a five year old who, like many parents will understand, was a great eater until she turned two, and then she started to assert herself and her personality and her demands, and that's Mm -hmm. gone in the way of food, and her diet has just become more and more limited, and it's become a huge source of frustration in terms of, I don't know what to do, Um, it makes travel Mm -hmm. a bit frustrating and limiting, I think she ate french fries about six times over the long weekend, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I'm getting a lot of messages echoing that, so I'm, I'm mm. curious in, t- in terms of in your experience, what do we know about why fussy eating starts to manifest in a child's behaviour?
6: yeah and yeah, that's a really good question, and I think it's really important to understand the different layers of this question. So first of all, it's really comforting and really safe for children to eat the same thing over and over again. They know what to expect, they know the flavors. Um, adults might see it as bland because we've got this you know huge amount of experience in life, but for children, it's just safe and comforting, and they know that there's no surprises which is why, uh, say, a punnet of blueberries will sometimes cause a child to like it or not like it because a punnet of blueberries sometimes can be sour or sweet, squishy or hard. They don't know what to expect from vegetables and fruits because they're so natural that they've got a different flavor in each, um, in each bite often. So they will go for the plain pasta or the really simple things that you know a lot of us call simple. So that's the first thing. The second thing is around about two years of age, children love to start exerting power and control in their life. And they do that through one way is through food, another way is through sleep. And the third way is through hygiene, like toileting or taking a shower or bath. So when we are talking about food, we have to understand that the child has decided something for themselves and they want to cling on to that in a way that they deem appropriate. Mm -hmm. Now, what we can do is start to think about, okay, is this a um, worrying decision? you know, parents know best, obviously you and I, Helen, are not medical professionals on this show, so please if your gut instinct is worried, take your child to the doctor, get a paediatrician to look them over.
2: Yeah, absolutely absolutely, and and that's and this is something that my husband, I hope he's not listening, has um, kind of (laughs) threatened our daughter with over the last few months is that, you know, if you don't start eating XYZ or trying new Mm. things then we will have to go to the doctors, and I don't want that doctor to be this kind of you know Mm, villain mm, figure mm. of, you know, you're going to go there and you're going to see someone who's not going to be happy with you but I I think the message here is saying I'm right there with you Helen my eight-year-old I'd love to know if it's better to insist they try new foods and withhold their normal food until they do or just let it be until they Mm. decide alone to go for it but why would she go for it as long as she has what she's used to right there Mm. that's such Mm. an interesting one because in kind of generations gone by it's like well if they're hungry, mm-hmm. they'll eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking from, yes. right from my grandmother, you know, oh, well, you know, a child <laughs> won't starve themselves. You know, wait, mm. you know, wait until they're really hungry and they'll, they'll eat mm. that. What would you mm. say to anyone who's trying to weigh up the, the right way to navigate this?
6: Yeah, sure. So, first of all, have a think about it. How important is this battle for you? Like, are you 10 minutes before having a Zoom meeting? Are you just about to leave for school run? Um, Are you yourself starving and tired and hungry? I would not be choosing my battle to introduce avocado to my three-year-old if I am any of those things. However, what you can do, and this is what I recommend for parents with picky eaters, is start with the conversation before the meal time. Have a chat with them. Understand where they're coming from. Is it the texture? Is it the color? Is it the smell? How would a parent feel if they disliked cauliflower and then their partner said to them, listen, you have to eat the cauliflower and then you can have the chocolate. It just doesn't feel right. Our brains are not wired for ultimatums. It doesn't work, especially if you have a strong-willed child. You and um, your husband, Helen, have got a far more bigger chance in getting your five-year-old on board with other things like, hey, I can see that you don't like zucchini in this particular dish. Would you like me to take the zucchini pieces out of that dish? And then you've got your, you know, other vegetables. No, I want no vegetables on there. Okay, so you just want rice and chicken only. What you're doing there is you're laying a compromise. You're showing her that she's still in control of her food, that you're not going to do any ultimatums, and that slowly you will get there. You have to allow a child to feel safe because with food, Food is about safety. That's Absolutely. why a lot of us comfort each. Yeah,
2: go on. I, I, think, um, I think for for me, having grown up with kind of weight issues and, um, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm really conscious of, I don't want to pass on my own issues to food, which I've come to resolve mm. now. I'm in my 40s. But, you know, for, for so long, it's this kind of, this is, you know, you eat the, the yucky food and then you eat get to eat the yummy food. And mm-hmm. this is good for you and this is bad for you. And I think mm-hmm. it, that being conscious about that language is so, so important. We are talking food on the show this afternoon, which can be a really emotional topic for a lot of parents because picky eating doesn't just impact your life and your your stress levels at home, but also when your kids go on play dates, when like, I'm dreading at Christmas, Christmas dinner. I'm not gonna be making a bowl of plain pasta for my five-year-old on Christmas day. So how can we navigate these social interactions? Joining us live on the line to help us out, we have got Conscious Parent Coat Mesa, who's taking my questions and yours um, on, on fussy eating. And we've had a number of messages on this, um, Mesa, and of course you can be completely anonymous. No name on this one saying, my eight-year-old girl is a very poor eater. Not monitored will get away with no eating at all. Never finishes her school lunch, and has to be scolded into eating even her favorite food, pizza. She weighs 23 kilos and around 120 centimeters. So, listen to that. Not so much a question as such, but really, I guess, looking for guidance in terms of mm. moving forward. And as you, as you rightly said earlier, you're not a medical professional. If anyone has any nutritional concerns, then absolutely go to the doctor, get those levels checked and, and make sure that, you know, your family doctor is happy with where they are. Mm-hmm. But in terms of behaviours and conversations mm-hmm. around food, what, what do you tend to recommend with parents who are having a similar struggle to this listener?
6: Yeah, yeah. So medical aside, let's talk about behavioural styles this child, this eight-year-old has gotten into the habit that when I'm scolded, I'm given attention because positive and negative negative attention is still attention. And so what you wanna do is create a different mannerism when it comes to food. Have the chat with her outside of the eating moment. When you say she's eating nothing at all, I mean, that's a little bit humanly impossible because surely she's eating something. Now, we need to recognize that a stomach of a child is the size of their fist. So if you have a look at your fist right now, that is the stomach, um, you know, of a child. And so how much can they fit in is a really important question. If they've had a banana an hour ago, it's not going to digest as quickly in 30 minutes as you go in time to have dinner. So what you need to understand is there's all these ideas before it comes down to sitting at the table and come on, eat your pizza. There's a lot of things that need to happen bef- beforehand, and I offer these, um, you know, ideas to parents that are listening. Firstly, how involved are they in their in the decisions when it comes to food? I only want plain pasta. Allow them to have plain pasta, maybe not on Christmas Day, but throughout the year. Allow them to make these choices that you deem boring or bland or weird. Allow it. Secondly, at the dinner table, how often do they scoop their own sizings into their plate? How often do they serve and set the table? How often do they stir the meal with you and cook and choose the ingredients? Is the kitchen a no-go zone? Because these kinds of children are really um, not aware of anything to do with food if they're not having that experience. Now comes the crunch time and you're sitting down, um, you know, wanting to have a nice family meal together and your child said, no, I don't want to have this. We need to look at the age at the context of it, and what else is happening. Are you saying, go and eat your dinner while you're doing the dishes and folding laundry? Have you sat down and talked with your child and connected? There's so much that can happen before the actual mealtime itself, Helen.
2: I think that's so interesting. And we've had a message here um, from uh, Zina saying, peer pressure... (laughs) and persistence have paid off in their household. And I actually think peer pressure is a really interesting one because my kids are are pretty prone to this actually. They'll, if they see Uh a kid next to them trying something or Like at the weekend for example we were away with some friends and everyone was eating the same thing around the table that Uh did make a difference um and in terms of persistence and i know this is a really hard one because we spend time buying spend money buying food preparing food Mm. and then to Mm -hmm. have that pushed away whether it's you know a a two-year-old's mouth clamping shut or a five-year-old pushing that plate away but what how how, um, important do you think persistence is just to keep Mm. on serving that food
6: do you think that could be effective it can definitely be effective and it's all about connection. I keep talking about connection because I'll tell you the answer to that story. Children believe other children and will give something a go if another child is eating it because children trust that child. They know that child has no ulterior motives. Whereas they look at mum and dad and go, oh, here we go again. They're never satisfied with what I'm eating. They're trying to bribe me. They're forcing me. I'm going to get punished. You have to have a connection-based relationship when it comes to food and understand that just like you don't like to be forced to do anything, same with children. When it comes to persistence, I'm going to pretty much allow parents to think of it in terms of what kind of persistence are you promoting? Is it stubbornness? Is it threatening? Is it bribing? Is it blackmailing? Or is it an opportunity to explore this piece of food? Hey, you don't want to have cherry tomatoes? Mm -hmm. Okay, do you want to cut them? Do you want to slice them? Do you want to peel it? What do you want to do with the cherry tomato? Alan?
2: I think that's a really interesting point in terms of that connection to the food. And I love the idea Mm. of, of you saying... You know is the kitchen a no-go area you know are you sitting mm. with your child rather than it being a case of i've got my back to you i'm preparing food it's in front of you and i'm going to keep on doing doing my thing which i understand is a very normal part of a, mm. of a busy of a busy life but I, we are, we we spoke recently on the show with spinnies and they've got this um kind of veg to table pledge about educating kids in the uae around Mm -hmm. where food comes from and i've I've seen a number of really great farms that are now open for for tours and kids can go and pick their own Mm. do you feel like promoting a sense of understanding food could could make a difference as well mesa
6: yes absolutely um a, a child's you know formative years is the home though so what mum and dad do is going to form a huge crux in their brain about the idea of food so if food is a constant battle in your household, you need to relook and rethink other ways. If food is not, then it's okay. You don't need to call your kids and spend hours in the kitchen and all of that. If your kids are okay with food and things are, you know, it's nice to cook with kids, but it's not a it's not something to focus on. But if you feel like your child, you've got a 5-year-old who just won't explore new foods, then I would invest a little bit more time on that topic. When I'm connecting with my child, I'd have um, maybe a YouTube video about where corn comes from, if that's something they don't like. And, you know, I'd probably tell them about me and my aversion to avocado for 29 and a half years. Why on earth I did not like such an amazing food? I do not understand. But, you know, there is hope (laughs) out there. What, but what about and I, I guess lastly I going not ask about
2: modelling behaviour because um, mm. please please do not come at me on four zero zero one. I don't like broccoli. I don't. I, mm. I actually am almost mm-hmm. phobic of bananas. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering about <laughs> us showing our kids us trying new things or can yeah. can that make a difference as well?
6: Yeah. Look, um, of course. It definitely can. It's just age appropriateness. So, you know, you're not going to go, broccoli, it's the worst. I'm going to vomit from, you know, you're not going to go like that. No. But you might, <laughs> I'm
2: trying. <laughs>
6: you, you might just, you know, touch on that you are human, you are imperfect, you have got an aversion to a particular food, but to substitute a broccoli, you will give a carrot a try. What you want to do is a fine balance between reality which is, hey, my beautiful child, I get you don't like broccoli. I would love for you to experience broccoli once. No, you don't even want to do it once. No problem. Do you want to um, experience blo- like whatever else is on the menu? Another really good tip, Helen, is create a no bowl. So when I serve a particular dish of mine that I make, like a Moroccan kind of couscous dish, my, one, each of my children have got some kind of thing one doesn't like capsicum the other one likes capsicum but but not mushroom so on and so forth so I've put a bowl next to them and they can pick out the particular vegetable they don't like and they'll eat the whole plate without the mushroom in there do I care a little bit because mushrooms are actually the best but am I holding out hope <laughs> until they're older yeah
2: but, but, they feel a bit. but what, what you're doing there is is um is, as you alluded to earlier is giving them some agency giving them some power okay. i mean, giving them some decision making um mm. in a family meal situation i think that that's going to be my big my big takeaway so to speak um david's saying just a quick reminder i ate nothing but mini sausages and baby bells for two entire years <laughs> now i'm absolutely <laughs> fine and i think that's a really really valid point is that kids yeah. go through phases and stages and uh and one of the best bits of advice I got when, I, when my kids were really little was don't think about what they eat every day. Try and think about what they eat over the course of a week and you might be pleasantly surprised. Mace, we've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions, but if anyone does want to seek your advice on this topic or one of the many other issues that you're so, so level-headed and honest and <laughs> useful, um, what's the best way of getting in touch with you?
6: You can find me on social media, on Instagram with the handle at Coach Mace EQ. And my email is there and you can also find me on Facebook and I would be happy to talk to anybody that's listening out there.
2: Thank you so so much both both personally and professionally some some real takeaways I'm going to be sending the podcast on to my husband and editing it out the bit where I might have been a bit mean about him. Miss it's been an absolute pleasure wishing you a wonderful afternoon ahead and thank you again for the amazing advice this is absolutely a topic we're going to return to because we did get a number of questions we didn't have time to get to and I know this is a really big one for so many of us. Breaking news! I think I've just had my third ever coffee in my life. It's uh, it's taking effect. <laughs> we are talking coffee today. We've had latte art. We've had making the perfect cup. And joining us now uh, from Raw Coffee, we've got Matt um, talking about well. The importance of water. And most of us know that humans can survive for weeks without food, but only a few days without water. But we're talking about the quality of our drinking water. Why so it's so important in what we drink, but also in everyday drinks like teas, and coffees. Six million cups of coffee consumed per day here in the UAE, and Raw are massive advocates on creating awareness around clean, pure water. Matt Hugood is the owner and CEO of RAW. Matt, how are you? I'm very well, Helen. How are you? I'm I'm buzzing on my third ever cup of coffee. <laughs>
7: We have to change that. Only three cups of coffee, that's terrible. In my
2: life, I know. <laughs> I know. But you know what, because I had a really creepy art teacher who used to lean over me with coffee breath and it put me off for uh, okay. life. So I'm, I'm willing to, I'm, I'm looking to rewrite history, Matt, and I'm, I'm hoping that when I get back to Dubai you'll be a part of that. But let's talk water. Does the, does the, you're obviously connoisseur in this, does the quality of the water that we add to our coffee actually make a noticeable difference? Do you think you could tell?
7: Well, let me put it this way: ninety nine point seven percent of the coffee drink that you have is water. So, absolutely, one hundred percent. The influence of the water is paramount, and not having the right water will completely change how your
2: coffee tastes. So, can, can it can it be scientific then? Is it almost a chemistry in terms of how the coffee and the water interact?
7: Yeah, it is. So let me de- let me describe it in the best way that I've sort of come up with. Um, if you have a water that is 100% pure, it has no minerals, no anything in it, and it has a, a, a pH, and pH is measured from 0 to 14, and in the middle at 7, is completely neutral. If the water was completely neutral and you put some coffee in that water, it would be very, very difficult, difficult for the actual coffee to dissolve into that water because there's nothing to help it dissolve in. And I, the, the way I describe it is it's like using a piece of sandpaper on a piece of wood. If you use extremely fine sandpaper, you don't actually make much of a dent. If you use very rough sandpaper, you bring more in there. So we have to find the right level of minerals in the water to extract and help the coffee solubles come into the cup that we drink.
2: That's such a good analogy. And in terms of the the data and research I have in front of me, which has been provided by the way, I'm not the coffee expert that you are. But <laughs> high calcium hard water brews a bitter coffee. So hard water, you know, high in magnesium as well, can bring out an earthiness of a coffee bean. And then, what about what about soft water? What what can that attribute in terms of mouthfeel or flavour profile that you might be able to notice?
7: Uh, waxy, um, sort of. It, it can be sort of like, sort of creamy, but not in a good way. Um, sort of like okay. eating a, a jello that's not that's not set properly. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but you know, we, we, you know everything. It, it, the the amounts of minerals that we're dealing with, uh, we measure it in the millions of parts. So we don't, it's it's such small amounts that, and it's it's quite incredible how dramatically that can affect. So if we were living in Europe, mm. the biggest problem that we'd be tackling every day is that hard water thing. So we would be, you know, constantly, if you live in, in most of Europe, the water comes through uh, lime the, the mm-hmm. stone around its lime and so that lime is calcium carbonate so that's calcium to the water and the water is extremely hard and that means that um, often you extract too much of the uh, coffee particles into in the solubles and we extract the bits of the coffee that we don't want the the, the stuff oh, that doesn't taste so good Because
2: you, You're taking yeah. this a step further you are mm-hmm. you're now looking at creating, I guess, the ultimate water for the perfect cup of coffee. You've created your own raw water. Can you tell us a little bit about the profile of that?
7: Yeah, so uh, there was two reasons for doing it. One is to protect the equipment. Because um, we have quite a lot of um, chloride salts in our water here. It comes from the desalination process where they remove the salt from the, from the water here. And that leaves it behind an iron. And that iron um, can be quite corrosive. I mean, we've all experienced in our houses here where you have that white fluff around the, the taps in your, in your bathroom. And, you know, everybody's had the three o'clock in the morning when the hot water cylinder uh, bursts. Um, so we, first of all, we were trying to protect all their coffee equipment because people are spending lots of money on coffee equipment these days. And the second thing was also the taste. And you're 100% correct. If you have um, too many minerals or too little minerals, the, the coffee doesn't taste as, it, as best as it possibly could. Yeah. So you know, we, we, we started out trying to fix a, a problem, which was that equipment was, in, in layman's terms, rusting. Um, but what we ended up uh, discovering is that the, the, the way that the coffee presents itself if we get all those things correct is fantastic.
2: Now um, the coffee connoisseurs, where can they get hold on of, of this uh, this special brew? What's the best way of getting having a trial? Well, so so we, water.
7: Yeah, with raw water, anybody can come into raw at any at any point in time and, and we will give you water for free. Um, we, uh, we have re, re, refillable bottles. Um, or you can bring your own bottle in and we can actually fill it up for you and you can take it away and you can make your coffee with it. Um, the the other thing that's uh, that we're doing now, with, and there's a lot of cafes have asked us to do this, so we've actually uh, invented a machine that makes the water perfectly as well. So we install that machine into the cafe and then uh, people um, uh, get perfect water at the cafes that they go and get their coffee from.
2: Now, Matt, we've been talking a lot today about... How to brew a perfect cup. And obviously, this is going to hugely depend on what coffee you drink, um, your taste preferences. And a lot of people are spending, as you say, a lot of money on on gear at home. I know yep. you guys do things on absolute next level and are really, really passionate. But for anyone listening today who wants to elevate their coffee making at home, what would your top tips be?
7: Number one tip is to buy whole beans and grind it just before you make it. That will improve Every single coffee that you can possibly imagine, it will improve it. So the fresher or closer to the time of grinding that you're actually brewing it or adding the water to it, it's going to make a massive, massive difference.
2: And I don't want to start any kind of international disputes, but <laughs> where do you feel like the best beans are from right now when we look at seasonality and when we look at availability? Where, what, where are you loving for good coffee right now, Matt?
7: I'm going to answer that in a different way. Where (laughs) am I wishing that I could buy coffee from at the moment that's extremely difficult to buy? Um, The birthplace, the home, the origin of coffee itself, uh, Ethiopia. Um, and unfortunately, due to the civil problems they've got down there, getting quality coffee from a- Ethiopia at the moment is very difficult. And mm-hmm. when we do get it, it's sort of like a guarded secret. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we're hiding it away. Um, and and the, now the, the best thing for in my little part of the world is that uh, the, the harvest has just started now. So any time in the next sort of two to three months all the coffee roasteries in Dubai will be starting to receive their fresh crops and so that's when you want to be coming and bugging us about end of February early March Uh, that's when you want to be coming and knocking on our door and saying hey where's the good new stuff
2: well, I have to say, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I would be honoured if you would make me my fourth ever coffee with your special <laughs> raw, <laughs> raw water. And in the meantime, fantastic, you can get it free. Um, Matt, what's the best way of getting in touch with you guys and where can we find Raw um, across the UAE?
7: Easiest place is rawcoffeecompany.com or rawcoffeecompany.ae as
2: well well you're some of my favorite homegrown heroes it's been an absolute pleasure to watch you guys grow and influence over the years and uh, lots more to come when you look at the amount of innovation and passion that you've got behind you matt all the very best to you and the team and i'll come to you next time deal thank you thank you very much take care matt